All right, looks like we're live. Shabbat Shalom again, everybody. Welcome to the Late Show uh, with yours truly, Noel, from the Unexpected Cosmology. And uh, we're starting 30 minutes late tonight. Thank you for your patience for those of you who are waiting around. Hopefully you guys weren't really waiting and you were part of the, the uh, Torah portions, which I had my buddy Polly Hart on. Uh, great discussion. I really loved it. Now, <laughs> tonight's discussion on Muhammad and the Millennial Kingdom. Those are probably two like Muhammad and Millennial Kingdom you never thought would go together. And I could see this going south real quick. I'm telling you right now, there's going to be people who are not going to like my conclusions. Look, they're just my conclusions. I'm just some dude, guys. I'm just some dude behind a, a laptop computer and I'm reading old books and trying to put the pieces together. If you guys disagree with me on this, that's totally cool. All right. So uh, let's just get right into this right now. Muhammad and the Millennial Kingdom by yours truly, Noel Joshua Hadley. And as I, you can see, it's pretty fresh off, off the print, 110-2024. Uh, today's date's the, the January 26th. Uh, as I mentioned last week, for uh, if you didn't catch it, for about six months, I was trying to make smoother videos where, you know, I go into a quiet space and I record and then I spend hours editing that. And then it takes me a full day of work just to, you know, make a video. It's something as simple as, you know, 12 to 15 minutes it takes like a whole day. And um, it, it just, I got so far behind the work and my research and other things like that, I wasn't able to keep it up. And so I'm just going to go back for a while to, uh, giving these presentations, read you through the, the paper. All of these papers you can find on my website. You can download them, especially for those of you who uh, subscribe. Uh, an all-access pass, $5 a month gives you all-access pass, gives you dozens upon dozens upon dozens of my papers that I write and research. Some of them are hundreds of pages long, lots of information to go through. <clears throat> Let me just say, too, before I... Um, I, I start this is that, you know, honestly, I when I went and I read the, the Quran for years, people asked me about the Quran. I didn't say anything about the Quran. I didn't criticize it because I've learned in life, you know, everybody can go on the Internet and pick out little passages here that says whatever they wanted to say. And I, I've learned uh, maybe let's call it wisdom as I get older that I don't want to criticize something that I don't know. For example, uh, I was asked earlier tonight, hey, Noel, what do you think about the Book of Mormon? I was like, I don't know. I've never read the Book of, Mor of Mormon. I, I could give you, you know, some generalities that, you know, people kind of throw out there, but I haven't read it, so I don't really want to criticize it. Well, when I came to the Quran, I was actually a little bit disappointed. Frankly, I, I was hoping that maybe there was a lot of propaganda against it. Maybe, you know, it, it was actually more enlightening than has been made out. And I <laughs> I can't tell you how disappointed I was at reading it. I'm like, this is, I mean, and I'm not just saying this to try to like win brownie points with people or be politically correct or or politically incorrect, I should say. Um, is if, if, if the Quran, if you could say it was scripture, I'll, I'll get my head sawed off for saying this, but if you have like the Torah is like level 10 scripture, uh, then I would place this level one. Like this, it's, it's just, I, I get it now after reading through the Quran, I get it. Why the Bible is forbidden in a lot of these countries. Like they do not want Muslims reading the Bible because if they read the Bible, they're going to see a far superior text that just blows the Quran out of the water. And it makes it feel like, like, you were like in preschool the whole time. Like it's just, it, anyways, uh, let's just get into it. Enough, enough, uh, enough talk. This is live. I can't edit this out. Sorry. <clears throat> Aha is how I wanted to begin this deliberation, but alas, Muhammad's mile marker on the timeline, as well as his activity within the confines of the millennial kingdom of Yahushua HaMashiach is more of a, hmm, at the moment, probably not what you wanted to hear. What some of you wanted me to say is that the Quran was written by the Jesuits along with the rest of history after the thousand years had come to an end and that there is no reason to sweat it. You, you get what I'm saying here? I mean, I, I, I would imagine that most, most people in this field of research where we're, trying, we're, we're showing that the millennial kingdom physically came upon the earth for a thousand years. Of course, my timeline is from 500 to 1500 that, you know, don't sweat it. The Jesuits just made it up afterwards. They fooled everybody. I'm not coming from that. And 
and I'm also not coming at this from the perspective that it was written first and then it was shut off and they nobody was reading the Quran until afterwards. It was like rediscovered. No, no, no. I'm I'm, I'm coming from a from a. The more I've looked into this idea of the millennial kingdom, I'm coming up. I think a lot of people have this idea that everyone was like holding hands and singing Kumbaya. And, and that's not my conclusions at all, um, that the world was full of sinners. And the, the ultimate story of the millennial kingdom is the story of the Bible, guys. The story of the Bible is that even if you were in paradise, you, you're, you're still going to rebel against commands and sin. Even if you're in the, pre the very presence of Yahuwah and you're going through the wilderness and he's there on the mountain in flames of fire, mankind rebels. That's the story of the Bible. Even if he is king of the earth and everyone knows that he is ruling this earth, that mankind is still going to rebel. That's the story of the Bible. And that's what we're going to be covering tonight. <clears throat> So let me say this again. What some of you wanted me to say is that the Quran was written by the Jesuits along with the rest of history after the thousand years had come to an end, and there's no reason to sweat it. Well, I don't dance that jig. I'm of the opinion that everything within the media is a lie and that our Illuminati history books are on equal footing, but then consider that propaganda would lose its potent toxicity if there were not a truth needing twisted and contorted for the normies. At the end of the day, I don't know if the Quran was written by Muhammad when they say it was written. I mean, obviously I wasn't there, but in, it apparently was written between 610 and 632, or if it was written and then rewritten by the committee, perhaps even compiled over the centuries by the cleanup crew, which very likely may be the case. None of us know. I wasn't there and neither were you. You should at least know that I tracked down a copy of the Quran at the local used bookstore actually right around the corner from my hotel room where I'm at now, and then gave it a thorough read. I would be a fool to criticize something without first offering a thoughtful glance. And to be honest, I cracked it open in hopes of enlightenment. That's what I said a few minutes ago. I really did. I, I wanted to like the Quran. I wanted to walk away with the personal knowledge of how misunderstood Muslims truly are. And in many ways, they are misunderstood. Also, to his credit, Muhammad is the sort of writer who gets to the point which I like. I like that in a writer. Just, just tell me, just tell me what the plot is. I don't, don't like, you know, <laughs> just get to the, point. the only problem is that Muhammad wrote a book, which not only got to the point, but one in which he pretty much stayed on that point, like a broken record. So here's a quote. People worship your Lord who created you and those before you so that you may be mindful of him who spread out the earth for you and built the sky, who sent water down from it and with the water produced things for your sustenance. Do not, knowing this, set up rivals to Allah. If you have doubts about the revelation we have sent down to our servant, then produce a single surah like it. Enlist whatever supporters you have other than Allah if you truly think you can. If you cannot do this, and you never will, then beware of the fire prepared for the disbelievers, whose fuel is men and stones. But if you do not, and you will never be able to, then fear the fire, whose fuel is men and stones prepared for the disbelievers. That comes from the cow, twenty-one uh, verses 21 through 24. I think the cow is book two. We're only three pages in, and the message is straightforward. Believe the message of the prophet or go to hell. All disbelievers are fuel for the fire. Worship Allah, or you'll be sorry. Hell awaits. Passages such as what I have just given you go on and on and on and on to the point of shell shock. After having combed through the Quran, can you blame me for suspecting these are the rants of an MK Ultra victim? For added clarification, what am I supposed to believe again so as to avoid hell? I mean, it's like, okay, I get it. I get it, Muhammad. I'm all disbelievers. Anyone who doesn't believe you, they're going to go to hell and they're, they're going to be so sorry. And they're going to burn up their skin's going to burn up, burn off. And then they're going to get new skin. So it just keeps burning and burning. And they're going to be so sorry that they didn't believe you. Muhammad says, all right, I got, I got it. You got to the point. Everyone's going to hell for not believing you. So what do you want me to believe? What is it Muhammad that you're trying to get at? I mean, for, I might say this later, but frankly, the Quran was the great of any religious document I've ever read. 
uh, save for a couple like Roman Catholic uh, text. Um, this is like the biggest fear porn I've ever read. It was just, it was tiresome. It just never ended. <clears throat> for, again, so for added clarification, what am I supposed to believe again so as to avoid hell, Muhammad? It's already been laid out. Telling you to worship Allah alone is the same thing as saying stop worshiping Yahushua Hamashiach, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yep, I've just cracked the code. That's the Quran in a nutshell. Again, would it surprise you to learn that my investigation relies upon the Quran in its original packaging, either as a non-corrupted first edition, which we apparently no longer have, or a series of propaganda pamphlets making the rounds on the magazine racks and the whereabouts of when they claim it did, give or take a century. I went into this with several working theories, though at present that's the story I'm going with. The Quran was war propaganda aimed at rewriting his story, brainwashing the normies, and ultimately pulling citizens out of a covenant relationship with Yahuwaha, which was furthermore renewed through Yahusha Hamashiach during the uh, fig tree generation. That's when he says, I, you know, he renewed the covenant. This is where we get the term New Testament from. So let me just say this again, that my, my takeaway here was that the Quran was written as war propaganda to ultimately pull citizens the, we'll call them the normies, out of a covenant relationship with Yahuwah. That's the whole point. That, that's the Quran in a nutshell. If you don't believe me or like my conclusions as to the timing of its publication, basically I'm saying, I think it was probably published when they said it was, even on my timeline of 500 to 1500, then feel free to pick up the Quran and read it for yourself. Afterwards, write your own doctoral thesis. I, for one, will continue developing this point. So here is another one. We gave, uh, so this is from, uh, oh, women, that, that has to be saucy, a book called Women. We gave the descendants of Abraham the scripture and wisdom, and we gave them a great kingdom. Isn't it interesting, too, that I, I find this fascinating that I, I to my content uh, or to my discontentment, I was never able to figure out why Allah in here refers to himself as we and us. It's always plural. And in the commentary, they'll say, well, he's just, he's too great to be singular. And, and it's like, well, what do you mean by that? You're talking about monotheism here. So you're talking about one entity, and yet he always describes himself as in, in the plural, like we and us. And like, this is like, it, it's just, a, it's like a weird pronoun. It doesn't really compute even with the, what I know of the Aramaic language. So let me start from the top. We gave the descendants of Abraham the scripture and wisdom, and we gave them a great kingdom. But some of them believed in it, and some turned away from it. Hell blazes fiercely enough. We shall send those who reject our revelations to the fire. When their skins have burned away, we shall replace them with new ones so that they may continue to feel the pain. Allah is mighty and wise. As for those who believe and do good deeds, we shall admit them into gardens, graced with glowing, uh, glowing streams, and there they will remain forever. They will have pure spouses there. This is where, you know, they get the, the multiple versions. And we shall admit them into cool, refreshing shade. Women 40, uh, 54 through 57. The writer of the Quran had quite the challenge before him. On one hand, he couldn't outright reject the Torah and the wisdom given to Yasharel, as well as the great kingdom which had visibly manifested in its wake. So that if you're not following, I'm suggesting that the research that I've been putting forward on the kingdom being manifested on the earth, it had it, it, it already happened. Okay. And one of the ways this would maybe help you picture this is that and I don't talk about this in here, but if you refer to my video or, or my paper that I wrote on Wastelands of the Seraphim, I think that's the first one I ever came out with two or three years ago at this point uh, on the Millennial Kingdom. And I showed how the idea, it, it starts with Revelation when it says that Jerusalem would be a haunt of demons and devils, an unclean, um, unclean rulecloth, unclean animals. It would be a wasteland after it was destroyed. Uh, well, the idea is, is that unclean Ruakoth, they would go into these wastelands and they would still be all on the earth. And we see repeated warnings of not going out to these wastelands to be instructed by these unclean Ruakoth. Great example of this is in the book of Jasher, when one of the descendants of Noah goes and he wanders the earth and he finds a, a stronghold of a monument to the watchers. 
And he goes and he's instructed on the religion of the watchers and he continues it. And so we see the same thing where Muhammad would, is out in the outskirts, in the wastelands, and he is being instructed. Uh, and so basically he's he's trying to get people, it's in the game of Red Rover, you know, you know, so-and-so come on right over. He's instructing the people to come out to the wasteland with him and, you know, live in a, uh, a lifestyle apart from a covenant with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Why deny the obvious reality around him? The fact that the Millennial Kingdom is there. Another locale which Muhammad made frequent use of was the Garden of Paradise. He talks about it all through the Quran, which is fascinating since it ties right in with the conversation piece of the hidden wilderness, which would have been, if I am correct in my assessment of the hidden wilderness, I wrote a whole book on it, if you guys recall, that would have been the topic of the kingdom. And he talks about it endlessly. The Garden of Paradise, a destination for the Kodashim of Yashirel. That's a reference, again, to the blessed land detailed in my other book, The Hidden Wilderness. What Muhammad needed is for the residents of that said kingdom to reject their citizenship, thereby entering the garden by another route. And Yahushua HaMashiach warned about this. To do so, a fork in the road was offered. Yishmael happened to be Abraham's other son through Hagar and made for the perfect patsy. And of course, the Torah would have to be done away, uh, to be done away, as is often, if not always, the case. With uh, it should have said done away with. I guess it got whatever at the threat of hellfire. So the Torah is done away with at the threat of hellfire. Like if you <laughs> if you if you keep to the obedience, obedience of the Torah, you are a disbeliever. Even modern Christianity tries their empty threats at that one. Claiming obedience sends you there, oh sigh. I've been told that before, that if you if you are obedient to Yahuwaha, you're going to hell. I've been told that to my face. But then there is the biggest fish of all to fry, Yahushua HaMashiach. And this is what the, uh, the prophet says. The disbelievers say the Lord of mercy has offspring. Uh-oh. How terrible is this thing you assert? It almost causes the heavens to be torn apart the earth to split asunder, the mountains to crumble to pieces, that they attribute offspring to the Lord of mercy. <clears throat> it does not benefit the Lord of mercy to have offspring. There is no one in the heavens or earth who will not come to the Lord of mercy as a servant. He has counted them all. He has numbered them exactly, and they will each return to him on the day of resurrection all alone. This is from Miriam, 88 through 95. And yes, Miriam is a reference to Mary, the mother of Yahusha. According to the prophet of Allah, only a disbeliever would say Yahusha HaMashiach was the son of Allah Hayam. By the way, I'm not triggered. People get into a hissy fit because the Quran straight up says that Yahusha is not the son of Allah Hayam without understanding the greater argument being put forward. To the writer of the Quran, there is no heavenly father. This is what we need to grasp here, okay? No, Allah may be the creator of heaven and earth, but the relationship between Allah and men is that he is Lord and men are his servants, or you could even say his slaves. Not even the angels regard him as father. There are no, there are no adoptions, no intimacy to be had. Therefore, to have a prophet like Yahushua claim a heavenly father to Muhammad, to the prophet, is ludicrous. That's not what I'm claiming. That's not what I'm claiming, mind you. Some people have short attention spans. <laughs> the present conversation revolves around the claims of the Quran regarding Yahusha, the son of Allah Hayyam. Well, here's what scripture has to say on the issue of fatherhood. This comes from Isaiah or Yeshiahu 44:8. But now, O Yahuwaha, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter, and we all are the work of your hand. Seems pretty straightforward if you want my opinion on the matter. Can't get any clearer than that. Yahuwaha was the father of Yasharel, implying any number of sons. Muhammad didn't like that. And so returning again to the Quran, here is what else we read. No person to whom Allah had given the scripture, wisdom, and prophethood would ever say to people, be my servants, not Allah's. This is where it really starts hitting the fan. He would say, you should be devoted to Allah because you have taught the scripture and studied it closely. 
he would never command you to take angels and prophets as Lord. How could he command you to be disbelievers after you had devoted yourselves to Allah? That comes from the family of Imram 79 through 80. You see, already we're being repetitive and in only a few short passages. I personally found the Quran to be a copy and paste affair, albeit this particular passage resides on the passive aggressive side of the aggressor scale. Stop worshiping Yahusha HaMashiach because Allah is not anyone's father. Should you persist, then you're a disbeliever on the highway to hell. If only Islam would take Muhammad's advice and treat Muhammad as a messenger rather than Lord, but I digress. Meanwhile, we shan't forget the words of the son of Allah Hayyam when he said, All things are delivered unto me of my father, and no man knows the son but the father. Neither knows any man the father, save the son, and he to whomever the son will reveal him. Bezora Matif uh, Yahu or Matthew eleven seventeen. It is even is it even possible to get more straightforward than that? No man knows the Father in heaven save the Son, and also those whom the Son will reveal. Sounds to me like the Son didn't reveal the Father to the prophets. Oops, I'm detecting a spirit of jealousy from the prophet. To quote Muhammad. You should be devoted to Allah because you have taught the scripture and studied it closely. Well, then either Muhammad hasn't read the scripture or he's intending an audience that hasn't read it for themselves. And that's the whole thing that really struck me. Like, I totally get it. Why when you go to these Islamic countries, they outlaw the Bible. They do not, maybe not all of them, but the majority, the big ones, they do not want the Bible read. And it's because if a true Muslim were to sit down and read it, they would go like, oh, like it would be pulling too many people away from the religion, from their controllers. Here, let me sum up the Quran for you again. The Quran was war propaganda aimed at brainwashing the normies, ultimately pulling citizens out of a covenant relationship with Yahuwah, which was furthermore renewed through Yahushua Hamashiach during the fig tree generation. It was also an attempt at scrubbing his story in real time. And for that claim, I will ask you to consider the following passage. I, I about fell out of my chair when I read this. Prophet, watch out for the day when the sky brings forth clouds of smoke for all to see. It will envelop the people. They will cry, this is terrible torment. Lord, relieve us from this torment. We believe. How will this sudden faith benefit them? When a prophet came to warn them plainly, they turned their backs on him saying, he is tutored. He is possessed. So people were actually claiming Muhammad was, you know, they were claiming he was possessed. So that's what he's saying here. How dare you say I was possessed? You're going to be so sorry for not believing me. We shall hold the torrent back for a while. You are sure to return to us. And on the day we seize the mightily, we shall exact retribution. Uh, that's from uh, Smoke 10 through 16. Really, I should have started out with this one. It's it's so good. Supposing you haven't gotten around to reading my report on 536, the year of the fire reset. Last week, I gave my presentation on, uh, was it 541? I call it the year of the apocalypse, and it's a, a, a chain of domino events. You have 536 was the big fire year, and that's when the, the sun for 18 months was blotted out. No sun, no moon, no stars. Uh, there was like a mystery fog and, you know, it was just an awful time and the whole sky was shrouded. Uh, so let's see. Uh, and I keep asking you to, to, to read this report or listen to it. Then you're probably already lost if you haven't done so. The rest of you have done your homework and should be falling out of your chair right about now, as I did. The footnote on the, at the bottom of my Quran claims that some scholars have interpreted this passage to indicate an actual event which Muhammad experienced within his lifetime. I take that to mean I wouldn't be the first to suggest the obvious. 536 is being described in this passage. In the very least, the apocalypse was rehearsed to the writer by someone who managed the experience. Considering all this impending fire talk, the prophet very likely may have been writing to an audience with the aim of making them forget about what had already occurred a generation or two earlier, maybe even their own. Believe me when I uh, say rewriting his story in real time is a perfectly achievable goal. Of course, you guys know this. The Mandela effect has taught me that. 
the normies will acknowledge the new reality and reject the old at the flip of a light switch. But then we have something like, so basically you can, you can actually change reality before our very eyes. And I've seen it ping pong back and forth. I've seen it in real time. And then watch people go, whatever the current reality is, they're like, like, no, that's, that's, it's always been that way. And then it could just flip back and they'll be like, no, it's always been that way. I've seen that in real time. That's how easily it can be done. And then here we see, um, uh, <laughs> uh, Leon Trotsky. So to understand what I'm getting at, you will need to recall a discussion we had some years ago regarding the Bolshevik revolution. Ask any historian and they will readily admit when faced with the reality of the Soviet Union, the rewriting of history became a recognized institution during the 20th century. Given absolute control over the literature as well as the media, the memories of hundreds of millions of people were rewired in one generation. Soon after Stalin achieved power, so this would have been like the, the 1940s at this point, rival Leon Trotsky, founder of the Red Army and monumental force behind the Bolshevik Revolution, simply disappeared from the public eye. You can see him in the provided picture. Uh, he's actually this guy right here, uh, to kind of standing there staring at the camera. Uh, he's standing directly under the soapbox, which Lenin, Vladimir, Vladimir is preaching from. Kind of like a where's Waldo. What happened to Trotsky? Well, thanks for asking. He was assassinated in 1940, ice axe to the brain. Immediately afterwards, every portrait that had once hung in public squares and private households, uh, Trotsky was erased from public consciousness. For the everyday Labor Party Soviet, Stalin and Lenin were inserted into the very role which Trotsky had once held, standing together as the imperial leaders of the Bolsheviks. So, Basically, Stalin just Stalin and Lenin just steamroll over him, or I should say uh, Stalin, and, uh, and Trotsky is just erased, completely erased. Never happened. One might think wiping away the existence of a nationwide public figure would be a conspiracy too large to pull off. I mean, think about that. Like, I don't know. Like I talk about all the time. Like, what if they were, what if they were to completely erase the Apollo missions? Never happened. And people are like that couldn't happen. Well, it it did happen. And I think it's totally achievable. But they could totally do it in the next generation. Wait till the baby boomers are dead or something like that. Just, just scrub it. And yet it, it did happen. History was rewritten. Every media outlet east of Berlin apparently had a part to play in the propaganda. Educators, facili educators facilitated it. Museums played their part. Even the postage stamp people were in on the conspiracy. Because, you know, the, the postage stamp people. While younger generations of Soviets believed the illegitimate distortion of the historical records was a true linear portrayal of political events and likely saw little to no reason to question it, older generations who had once personally familiarized themselves with the works and portraits of Trotsky in real time notably struggled with false memory syndromes. In fact, that's what they, they called it. Uh, they, they coined it false memory syndrome. A false memory syndrome, in case you were unaware, is the experience of see, uh, seeming to remember events that never actually occurred in the official narrative. And there is the Mandela effect for you. That's one of the things they're saying, that people who believe the alternate reality, they have a false memory syndrome. It's the same thing as what happened in the Soviet Union. And people get gaslit for it. Everyone's favorite establishment spook, George Orwell, took notice of the Stalin playbook. And he later wrote something to the effect the most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history, which is the entire discussion we're having on the Millennial Kingdom. I know I've been saying this a lot as of late, but that right there pretty much sums it up. In his dystopian novel 1984, Such a Condition, knowing what is otherwise true and yet cognitively finding no contradiction in simultaneously believing what the establishment de demands is true is called doublethinking. People voluntarily learn doublethink due to peer pressure, mainly the desire to fit in, thereby gaining status within the party, cult, denomination, or institution of their choice. Anyone who recognizes any contradiction within the policy is deemed a blasphemer. Of course, we have these in denomina church denominations as well. He will likely receive harsh disciplinary action and immediate disownership from patriotic party, patriotic party members or uh, religious party members. Today, it's a central con contributor of Big Brother's formal brainwashing programs, which is a bit of a no-duh statement considering this present investigation. 
I mean, they've successfully, successfully, excuse me, it's late. I need another drink here of water. I mean, they've successfully cooked the books of the Millennial Kingdom, have they not? Who is to say that Muhammad did not take a crack at it? Now, <laughs> oh man, this brings back childhood memories, I'm telling you right now. In the real world, you don't pen one of the biggest sellers of all time without having connections. I'm looking at you, Augustine of Hippo. Oh, so I admit I'm backtracking 100 years or so because Agent Augustine bit the dust in 430, whereas Muhammad met his maker in 632, as official timelines go, just officially. I can just imagine all the blue-blooded controllers, <laughs> pedophiles pressing the city of God up to their smelly brown noses while taking long walks past the PP pan fountains. Changing the subject again, but only slightly, say what you will about Alberto Rivera, the Roman Catholic whistleblower. He claimed to be a former Jesuit priest from Spain, though the official narrative refuses to acknowledge his existence. Another facet of his life which they refuse to acknowledge is the manner of his death. They claim it was colon cancer, and you can look this up like on Wiki, whatever, they, all the websites, they say he died of colon cancer, when in fact Alberto insisted he was poisoned. He's also the individual that inspired the creepy comic book series that lay under my bed and scared the crap out of me as a child. I am showing you six covers from the Crusaders, one of which promises to, promises to detail the life of the prophet. I'll let you find it among the bunch. Can't say I own that particular one. Bummer. Sounds like a page turner. Actually, uh, in writing this article and in researching it, I went and tracked down a whole lot, like a it was like a like twenty five lot of these comic books on on a, on a, it was eBay, and so yeah, that's how dedicated I am to my research. Because if I if I talk about something, I want to thoroughly read it. So um, yeah, looking forward to that. Included within that issue, actually, it's this one right here. You can see right there the profit, right there. Included within that issue is an excerpt from an interview given by Rivera, the, the former Jesuit whistleblower. In an effort to save the rainforest, you can read the entire thing for yourself on TUC. So there's a link right there. Uh, I put his entire interview up in an article. I will only be backing up the dump truck on a few select quotes, such as the following. Another problem, so this is Rivera speaking here. Another problem was the true Christians in North Africa who preached the gospel. Roman Catholicism was growing in power, but would not tolerate opposition. Somehow the Vatican had to create a weapon to eliminate both the Jews and the true Christian believers who refused to accept Roman Catholicism. Looking to North Africa, they saw the multitude. He, he says over and over again without saying it, he's talking about the Nazarene, just so you know. It, it's so apparent he's talking about the Nazarene. But he doesn't want like he doesn't want to offend his uh, evangelical base. Looking to North Africa, they saw the multitudes of Arabs as a source of manpower to do their dirty work. Some Arabs had become Roman Catholic and could be used in reporting information to leaders in Rome. Others were used in an underground spy network. Say what? To carry out Rome's master plan to control the, the great multitudes of Arabs who rejected Catholicism. When Saint Augustine appeared on the scene. He knew what was going on. His monastery served as bases to seek out and destroy Bible manuscripts owned by the true Christians. Dang. I knew Augustine was a spook and, and that there was a smoking gun poking out from underneath his alb. But this barrel is loaded. The RCC hosted an underground spy network via Augustine's monasteries. His missionary journeys in Britain, which I've talked about in the past, are finally making a whole lot more sense if they haven't already. He was trying to establish uh, spy networks in, you know, one of the places I, I say is ground zero for the Millennial Kingdom. Rivera, one of the, the plantings for Yasharel. Rivera even has Augustine destroying Bible manuscripts owned by the quote-unquote true Christians. That's a reference to the Nazarene. He guards his words carefully so as not to receive a loogie from the KJV only in 66 canon crew. 
I could take a sentence like that to mean Augustine was destroying Bibles in their language so that Latin was the law of the land, which is a possibility. But I'm thinking it's some of the lost books like the Gospel of the Hebrews, which we know was in the Nazarene's care, no longer exists except for a few select quotes, which was being chucked into the pyre. And of course, we have others like uh, the Book of the Illuminators, uh, which is given the authority of the Nazarene. That was another one of their books. And we only have that because, like, to our knowledge, like one copy survived. I mean, it's that dire. Like, Augustine did his work. He went around destroying. Then we have uh, the Gospel of Peter, which was another one. I, I, that was another one of the Nazarene uh, that we only have uh, the Gospel of Peter, Bazora Kifa, it, not even a completed manuscript. And the only reason we have it is that it was found in the bones of a dead monk. He was buried with it to preserve it. He wanted to preserve it so bad, he made sure he was buried with it where nobody could find it, maybe dig it up years later. Setting up Augustine's monasteries as water cooler hangouts for spooks plays an important role in what Rivera claims next. The Vatican wanted to create a messiah for the Arabs, someone they could raise up as a great leader, a man with charisma whom they could train, and eventually unite all the non-Catholic Arabs behind him, creating a mighty army that would ultimately capture Jerusalem for the Pope. In the Vatican briefing, Cardinal Bia told us this story. A wealthy Arabian lady who was a faithful follower of the Pope played a tremendous part in this drama. She was a widow named Khadija. She gave her wealth to the church and retired to a covenant as a nun, but was given an assignment. She was to find a brilliant young man who could be used by the Vatican to create a new religion and become the Messiah for the children of Ishmael. Khadija had a cousin named uh, Waraqwa, who was also a very faithful Roman Catholic, and the Vatican placed him in a critical role as Muhammad's advisor. He had tremendous influence on Muhammad. The Vatican needed an Islam army to capture Jerusalem, but why not do it themselves? It's not like the official narrative deprives the Pope of fighting men. I'm not saying there wasn't a bloody conflict in Jerusalem during the kingdom of Mashiach via the Crusades, but my investigation has led me to conclude that Yehuda was purposely under, underdeveloped by the sons of Yashiro during the thousand years. As Revelation 18.2 states, I already insinuated that time when I talked about how Jerusalem would be a haunt of unclean spirits and so on and so forth. And when we see what, what we call Tartaria, these buildings all over the world, we don't see them developed in the Holy Land. I mean, it, it was wasteland. It wasn't developed until the 1800s when all the, the churches and stuff started popping up. And you know, we see writings like uh, Mark Twain. He said he walked through them and it was just tumbleweeds. There was nothing there. And um, and so, you know, obviously we can really question like, wait, what? Like you're fighting all these wars for the Holy Land. You're not even developing it. You're not even, it doesn't make any sense. Whatever, I digress. Rivera didn't have full disclosure, and I don't hold it against him. He's going with like a like a narrative framework that, you know, we're not working on that narrative framework anymore. I could very well see a finance fighting force against Mashiach, though. What better way to do that than create a second Messiah for the um, Arabs, Arabians? That's where Khadija bint, uh, I'll mispronounce her last name, forgive me, uh, Khadija bint who Wilid steps onto the stage. We'll just call her Khadija. The mother of Islam was a wealthy 40-year-old widow when she married the 25-year-old Muhammad. She initially brought Muhammad on as an employee three years earlier in order that he might manage her affairs. But then Rivera clarifies she had already given her wealth to the RCC and retired to one of Augustine's world-famous uh, luxurious resorts, his monasteries. Muhammad was her assignment. Interesting to note, it was not Muhammad that proposed to Khadija, but Khadija to Muhammad. It was a huge, you know, I mean, given this culture and everything, that's a huge red flag right there. And that's uh, the official narrative, too. Way to rock the cradle, Khadija. In other news, history records that be she became the first woman Muslim while simultaneously overlooking the obvious. She was his handler. Muhammad began receiving divine revelations, and his wife's Catholic cousin, Raqwa, helped interpret them. How convenient. And that was another quote from uh, the former Jesuit, Rivera. Waraqwa, 
um, Nafal as another fascinating character, not simply due to his relations with Khadija or because he played the part of his other handler, Muhammad's other handler, helping Muhammad to interpret his visions. Wink, wink. Rivera claims he was a Roman spook. Did I not tell you that the Quran comes across like the rants and ravings of an MK Ultra victim? It really does. It's like his, his eyelids were like taped open or something too long. That is likely to get my head sawn off, but somebody out there needs to hear it before my Ruach meets Yahuwaha. So here's another uh, quote from the uh, Quran from the book of Jonah. So if you, prophet, are in doubt about what we have revealed to you, ask those who have been reading the scriptures before you, Jonah 94. The Quran, the Quran has Allah telling the prophet to go to the people of the book and ask them how to interpret it. That's interesting. Because ask any former Catholic, reading the Bible for oneself is dangerous business. That quote really stood out to me during my Quran binge reading session. Many will interpret that passage to mean Muhammad was, was, was expected to interview Christians and Jews about scripture, but that's not how I take it at all. And I'm not the only one. The people whom Allah assigned as Muhammad's fact checkers were likely Khadija and uh, Warqwa. And I think that's who he's talking about there. Uh, go out, he's, he, it's, it's Allah telling the prophet, go ask the people who I have allowed to interpret the book for you. So basically anything in the, the Torah, the Tanakh, and the New Testament, you have to interpret it through your two handlers. And whatever they say, that's what it means. That's what that passage means. Well, get this then. I checked. Warqua was an Ibionite priest. I couldn't believe it when I read that. Um, are you remotely aware of who the Ebionites were? The Ebionites followed the Torah of Yahuwaha while proclaiming Yahusha as Mashiach. Many of them rejected the teachings of Paul as well, holding strictly to vegetarian diets, like that pipe and smoke on it. Augustine's, so I threw that out for the anti-Paul crowd, because we all know that the Ebionites were famously, apparently, very anti-Paul. And so you here you have one of Muhammad's two handlers was an anti-Paul, vegetarian, Ebionite priest, followed the Torah, uh, and kept Yahushua HaMashiach as, uh, kept Yahushua as, as Mashiach, apparently. Augustine's agents had infiltrated the Ebionites. That confirms everything that Rivera had been claiming regarding the true church, because the Ebionites had their own scripture apart from the Roman Catholic, uh, canon as well. In Augustine's day, the Ebionites and the Nazarim and everyone else opposing the RCC, yes, I even include the Gnostics in this, were probably all infiltrated in top management. So, you know, the, the biggest, uh, you see the biggest propaganda is being pushed against the Nazarim, the Ebionites, and the Gnostics. And, you know, I'm not praising the Gnostics, but any time when the Roman Catholic Church and all those people running it are, are throwing these accusations at the Gnostics, it makes me turn my head and go, okay, I'm smelling propaganda here. Like, why am I going to believe what you're saying about them? All right, last portion of the night. Hope you guys are enjoying this. It's my head. Remember that. It's my face and <laughs> my face and name on camera. Remember that time when I quoted from the Quran and it straight up said that Allah has no sons? That passage can be found in Miriam 88 through 95. And then there is the other passage which I quoted from, the one which claims no servant of Allah would ever take an angel or a prophet as Lord. There is something relating to Muhammad's argument which needs mentioned, which is why I'm giving it another uh, recitation. Read it again, and then we will discuss. So this is the passage I quoted from earlier tonight. No person to whom Allah had given the scripture, wisdom, and prophethood would ever say to people, be my servants, not Allah's. He would say, you should be devoted to Allah because you have taught the scripture and studied it closely. He would never command you to take angels and prophets as Lord. Who's he talking about here? He's talking about Yahusha. It's, it's, a, it's a very passive-aggressive argument, but that's clearly what he's indicating. How could he command you to be disbelievers after you had devoted yourselves to Allah, the family of Imran 79 through 80? Are you having the same troubles with this passage as I am having? 
It doesn't line up with other assertions made by Muhammad. Not seeing it, I think I know what's happening. I neglected to give you Satan's origin story, according to the, the prophet. Get ready for a contradiction galore because I'm about to give it. So this comes from the cow. When we told the angels, bow down before Adam, and again, this is Allah talking in, in the, the pronoun of we, they all bowed, but not, uh, I think it's pronounced Iblis, but not Iblis, and this is the Satan character, who refused and was arrogant. He was disobedient. We said, Adam, live with your wife in this garden. Both of you eat freely there as you well, but do not go near this tree or you will both become wrongdoers. But Satan made them slip and remove them from the state they were in. The cow 34 through 36. Sounds, uh, this quote sounds very Christian. I mean, there's a lot of texts that basically say the same thing. We'll pay attention to what's happening here. It says here that Iblis, the serpents in this story, refused to bow down before Adam. But then if I'm reading Muhammad's dissertation right, why should he? I thought we were supposed to have no Lord but Allah. Iblis was simply taking Muhammad's advice or vice versa. And I say vice versa. Satan was showing strength and resilience of character and refusing to give in to the peer pressure and bow down with the crowd. Get this, wanting only to worship Allah alone. And how did Allah repay him? By villainizing him, casting him down out of heaven, whereas he apparently honored Muhammad for... Uh, the same task, meaning Allah honored Muhammad for not bowing down to Yahusha. But then get this. This comes from the family of Iman as well, 59 through 60. In Allah's eyes, Isa, that would be Yahusha, is just like Adam. He created him from dust, and he said to him, be, and he was. This is the truth from your Lord, Allah. So do not be one of those who doubts. Did he just say that Yahusha Hamashiach was a second Adam? Call me a Western or an infidel or whatever, but I'm not following the logic. Muhammad is straight up recognizing Yahusha Hamashiach as a second Adam, which is great and all. I mean, doesn't Paul do the same in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 and Ephesians 1, 10? He does. And so it just seems to me that Iblis would also refuse to bow down before Yahusha. The second Adam, seeing as how he's a diehard worshiper of Allah and all, consistency is key, which just so happens to be the very action of the prophet. Mashiach was the second Adam, king of kings, lord of lords, though Muhammad wanted nothing of it. Oh, sure, Muhammad, keep telling yourself that you would have been with the other angels, bowing down to Adam. Seems to me like the writer of the Quran was projecting himself onto Satan and refusing to join with the crowd. He was the one guy in the crowd demanding others to do the same or burn in fire, which ironically is where Satan and his followers will end up. I don't know if you guys got all that, but basically the, the idea here is that Satan refuses to bow down to Adam because he's like, no, I'm not going to make any angel or any man my Lord. You're my Lord, Allah. I'm your servant. And for that, he's cast down. Now, Muhammad's saying the same thing. He's villainizing Satan, but then saying, you're to do the same thing. So um, anyways, that's kind of the end of that. That was, uh, well, let's see how long was this? It was close to an hour. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I'm just going to check the comments here before I close shop for the night. doesn't look like there are too many comments tonight. <laughs> a lot of you watching tonight, but not a lot of comments. Maybe nobody wanted to be attached to this video. I don't really know. Um yeah, so let me know what your guys' thoughts are. And just to give my conclusions as well, and what I mean by my conclusions is it's not like a, you know, diehard science here, but I'm of the opinion that there was, uh, as I said earlier tonight, that the, the theme for me of the Bible from beginning to end is that no matter the situation that mankind is put in, he will ultimately rebel. If he is in paradise in the garden, in heaven, he will rebel. If you lead him up to Mount Sinai and Yahuwah is there manifested before all men and he gives you his instructions of righteous living, people will rebel. 
if 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 Yahuwah is manifested, incarnated, incarnate as Yahusha HaMashiach, and he comes down and he lives a righteous life and he says, follow me, mankind will rebel, right? So why do we think that when he comes down as king and is now manifesting a kingdom on this earth, that all of a sudden everyone's going to be robotic? It's not going to happen like that. Yes, the lion laid with the lamb. Where? On his holy mountain. Where was his holy mountain, guys? I keep saying this. It, it wasn't worldwide. It was the hidden wilderness, the blessed land, Eden, paradise, where New Jerusalem was, right? In the north. Zion, the world Zion, but you still had, you have the crescent there, but you have the rest of the world where we inhabit and people sin. They, they have the opportunity to wake up each day and either be loyal uh, or sin. And um, so I, I just think that um, there was opposition and I think that's what was going on with the Quran. And I, I'm a broken record at this time. So um no, there's not going to be any more discussion tonight. We already did the Discord. And for those of you sticking around this late, um, every Friday night at this uh, right now in our schedule, two hours before I go live with my Torah portions. So that would be because I go with my Torah portions 9 p.m. Eastern time. So we're looking at uh, 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, I go into Discord and anybody who has questions for me, anyone who wants to talk to me or just have conversation with the group, it's a great time. We, I, I sit there silently sometimes, 15, 20 minutes, and just listen to the conversation. It's great. People ask me questions. So if you guys have questions for me, you want to speak to me in person, Friday night, 7 p.m. Eastern time, come to my Discord group, and uh, I'm there for you, and I'd love to hear from you guys. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and shut off for the night. Shabbat Shalom one last time. Hope you guys have a restful Sabbath restful weekend, and we'll do this again next week. Oh, to give you a preview of next week, next week I'll be talking about another element of the Millennial Kingdom, and it's going to be chess in the Millennial Kingdom. Some of you, you guys, you like your eyes already glazed over like chess. Uh, I guarantee you, if you guys come for this, um, you guys will never look at chess the same way again. It, it's it, the stuff I was pulling out, like this is. I think chess is a legitimate invention of the Millennial Kingdom. I think this was created by divine beings. And uh, with that, good night, everybody.